Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The creation poem of Genesis 1 begins with a simple but profound statement about the world's relationship to God, namely one of complete and utter dependence. Whatever is exists purely because of God's action. The rest of the poem, then, details God's dividing, forming, and filling. He separates light and darkness. He separates earth from sky. He separates water from land. And then he fills the land with plants, the sky with heavenly bodies, the waters with fish and sea creatures, and the earth with animals. The pinnacle of this creation, according to the poet, is us, humankind, made in the image and likeness of God, and given an awesome responsibility to work and tend the garden. In the Hebrew, working and tending had priestly connotations. Adam and Eve are the first priests. At the end of this beautiful symphonic sequence, we get this conclusion. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all those of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work, which he had done in creation. So why does God take a rest? It's a question that's perplexed me. Surely the text doesn't mean to imply that the God who created the world out of nothing, who is omnipotent, omniscient, omniscient, omnipresent, and impassable, needs to take a break because he's tired and needs to recuperate. The best explanation for this divine rest that I've heard is that this is an anthropomorphism that depicts God like an artist who completes a masterpiece, steps back from his canvas, and sighs a sigh of satisfaction at his handiwork. What a beautiful world he has made. It is good. The rhythm at the heart of the creation poem became ingrained in the cultic and social life of the people of Israel. As we heard in the Ten Commandments today, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the rest of the commandment in the small letters that we don't usually read because it would take too long. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your manservant or your maidservant or your cattle or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. When Israel wandered in the wilderness, they were given bread from heaven, the manna. And they were instructed on the sixth day to pick a double portion so they wouldn't have to gather on the Sabbath. When some of the Israelites did go out on the Sabbath to gather some more, 
There was no heavenly bread for them there. In fact, they were rebuked by God for going. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your ass may have rest, and the son of your bondmaid and the alien may be refreshed. The purpose of the Sabbath then is multifaceted. There's a sense in which the Sabbath is the first breakthrough the curse that was given to Adam and Eve. You toil and you labor and the land, you have to strive against it. But then on the seventh day, there's this window into this rest and enjoyment of creation. So the Sabbath afforded the people, their animals, and the land rest from work and toil. But it also allowed them to appreciate what they had. There's a sense in which the Sabbath taught the people of Israel humility. And I think many of us today tend toward workaholism. I wouldn't know from experience, but I'm told. We want to get ahead. We want to do that extra day of work so that we can gain some advantage, whether it's over our competition or to help minimize our workload for the rest of the week. In fact, the prophet Amos detailed the people of Israel's excitement for the Sabbath to be over because they were more interested in commerce than in worship. When will the new moon be over, the people asked, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances? I think the Israelite people speak more for the general human condition here, given our cultural insistence on doing business 24-7 instead of taking a day off. We're even at the point now where the market has entered the home through our digital devices, uh, rather than being a place where we have to intentionally go. While it might sound nice in theory, the Sabbath, a day off from our work, is actually a very hard practice for humans to embrace. Because it teaches us, frail creatures, that we are not the creator, that everything is not in our control, and that we are not the masters of our fates. Instead, it teaches us that we are reliant on God and his word, not on our own understanding. As God tells the people in Exodus 31, You shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. It is with all this background, then, that we arrive at our reading this morning from the Gospel according to St. Luke, where our Lord is invited to the house of one of the Pharisees for a feast. While there, the Pharisees bring out a man who suffered with dropsy a disease where the vital organs build up in excess of fluids, which then collects in various parts of the body, often resulting in swollen limbs, particularly the legs. The condition is linked to congestive heart failure, which, of course, at that day and age would have been fatal. Jesus uses this man at the party with dropsy to pose a question to the Pharisees. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now, this is not the only exchange on this topic that Jesus has had with the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of violating the Sabbath when they plucked grain to eat as they were walking by a field. 
And in the Markan version of that story, Jesus summarizes his argument. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The point is that the day of rest was not arbitrary, as the Pharisees so often made it out to be through their legalism. In so doing, they added commandment upon commandment upon commandment, extra biblically, and they ended up undermining the purpose of the Sabbath. This beautiful day of contemplation and rejuvenation was being turned into yet another day of work through the sheer weight of observance requirements that they were piling onto the people. So in St. Luke, Jesus gets to turn the table on the Pharisees by posing the question to them, and he puts them in a double bind. Because if the Pharisees were to say, no, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then they would have had to deny the opportunity for healing to the man right in front of them. Nobody wants to be that person. But if they said, yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then they would have to be implicitly admitting the divinity of Christ who is Lord even of the Sabbath. So instead of answering Jesus' question, they plead the fifth. They remain silent. And this allows Jesus to expound even further. Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightaway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again these things. We think about how ridiculous the imagery would be. You're walking by and you see a poor animal in a pit. And you say, well, hopefully he'll make it till tomorrow. Or even worse for your children. Though sometimes it's tempting to leave your children there. Don't tell him I said that. But the point is this. Whatever Sabbath observance is supposed to look like, it should benefit us. Piling on those extra requirements are counterproductive and defeat the purpose of the day. Like all Old Testament ritual and cultic practice, the Sabbath observance in Judaism is a type and shadow for something that is to come. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author, St. Paul, at least I think it's St. Paul, uses the Sabbath rest to stand for the promise of eternal life. He says, For we who have believed enter that rest. And belief here to the author of Hebrews means much more than cognitive assent. It means being more than a hearer. It means being a doer. He says, it remains for some to enter the rest. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. He's speaking about the Israelites there. He goes on to say, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever enters God's rest also ceases from his labors as God did from his. During the comfortable words of the Mass every Sunday... We hear Jesus promise us this rest. Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Our Lord is our Sabbath rest. He is our promised land, and he is our portion. And how do we attain him? By striving to conform our lives to his. And this is where the second part of the reading in which Jesus tells a parable to his pharisaical interlocutors, comes into play. When you're invited to a wedding, 
Don't take the highest seat because someone more honorable than you might attend the wedding and the host will have to come to you and say, hey, you have to move in order to make room for the more honorable figure. And so you'll have to go to where there's an open seat, probably at the back of the line. So instead, when you're invited to a party, take the lowest seat because then the host might see you there and say, hey, you need to move up. You're more important than that. This parable really summarizes the theme of St. Luke's Gospel, which is distilled in the Magnificat, which is the hymn of Our Lady that we pray at evening prayer each day. He hath put down the mighty from their seat, and hath exalted the humble and meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He, remembering his mercy, hath holpen his servant Israel, as he promised to our forefathers, Abraham and his seed forever. The Magnificat is a hymn about reversal that anticipates how Jesus upsets our expectations. The Jews in his day were expecting the Messiah to be a political revolutionary who would violently overthrow the Romans. But Jesus doesn't meet those expectations. Jesus is crucified by the Romans. The rich young ruler in the story that's told in the Gospels thought himself privileged for the kingdom. Yet Christ embraced not him, but the poor and the outcast. The Pharisee thought he went to the temple justified, but in reality, it was the poor publican who wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. The principle of reversal is present at the end of today's parable. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And who is a better example of this principle than our Lord himself? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We enter his rest when we become like him by humbling ourselves, considering others better than ourselves. And it's important then that we avoid the mistake that the Pharisees made, the piling on of extra requirements that miss the point of our ritual. The goal for us in this community is that our worship, both public and private, though really there is no such thing as private worship purely, is that we participate in the mystery at the heart of our faith, which is the crucifixion of our Lord. That becomes the template for everything. It's at the heart of the Mass. It's what we receive, his sacrifice given for us. That sacrifice is what makes all of our prayers effectual. And it should be the template for how we live our lives when we step outside of those doors. And really, when we're inside these doors, too. 
what we enact here at the Mass, the reenactment of Christ's sacrifice, the representation of the cross, and what we pray in our devotions should form a beautiful symphony with our lives so that all of who we are might be a sweet, sweet sound in his ears. And if we pursue this blessed life, then we will find that blessed rest that he offers us. Come unto me, all ye who travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.